This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Like all public radio stations, WDFH depends on financial support from our listeners. Please visit WDFH.org and click on Donate to make your tax-deductible gift. Shows like this can't be done without your support. Thanks, and now, Outcasting. This is Outcasting, the Lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and favorite cactuses, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH-FM 90.3, in Austin, New York, and on the net at WDFH.org. On this edition of Outcasting, we'll talk with Richard Sines about his experiences as a lawyer with Queen's Legal Services in New York City. Queen's Legal Services is a nonprofit organization that seeks to provide equal access to justice for all low-income residents of Queens through a range of legal advocacy, education, and community partnerships. They provide free legal counseling, representation, and referrals in civil matters to eligible low-income individuals and families. They also work to address and identify root causes for systemic inequalities in the legal system. Queen's Legal Services is a part of Legal Services NYC. Our guest, Richard Sines, represents low-income people living with HIV and LGBT families. I'm Travis, here with Juliana. Hi, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Thank you, Travis and Juliana. So how did you get into this kind of advocacy? Well, as a gay Latino man from Houston, Texas, there weren't that many of people who look like me doing um, legal work, and even fewer who are out. I've been out since high school and have been doing advocacy work and um, organizing since high school. Again, it was just because the need was there. And in college, my university, I, I went to Georgetown University, which was which is the first um, Catholic university in the United States. We did not have an LGBT resource center. And looking around colleges now, it's unheard of to not have a resource center. And my classmates and I, along with the support of professors and the administration, some of the administration, you know, that was something that we worked hard on. And it took many years. And it wasn't until after I had graduated that they, um, that they did establish an LGBT resource center. What are the sorts of issues that you deal with on a daily basis? On any given day, I could be dealing with um, one type of issue. For example, a family court case, which could be a custody issue. Or I could start off the morning with the benefits issue that someone, um, someone's benefits were misbudgeted. Then in the afternoon, deal with an issue about discrimination. And then at night, get an email concerning um, someone who's facing an eviction. Um, so what are the sort of issues that mainly would focus with uh, people living with HIV or LGBT families? But first talk about the HIV people. Most of our clients are living on some form of public assistance, which includes some shelter costs, which includes food stamps, and also um, some public health insurance program like Medicaid. If, for example, there were an accident, although my primary issue is trying to get better or getting healthier, because I'm unable to work, this might lead to me losing my job or me losing my housing or for some people, it could also mean, you know, having less food on the table. So when we talk about um, having an HIV-specific project, we're talking about those issues. But we're, we're also 
talking about the reality that in 2012, people living with HIV are still highly stigmatized, and there's still a lot of misinformation out there about the virus itself and what it means to be living with HIV. Um, for LGBT families and individuals, again, there's still a lot of stigma out there. Although we live in New York State, um, which is relatively progressive, there are still a number of issues that are made worse because of discrimination and discriminatory practices. So, for example, in New York State, although um, same-sex couples are able to get married now, there's still a lot of unanswered questions around how other states or other places will respect or recognize their families. So do you deal with a lot of marriage equality regarding like insurance policies and taxes with married couples? We do. And in fact, my organization, um, Legal Services NYC, we partnered with um, Lambda Legal, which is the national LGBT and HIV advocacy organization, and preparing what we call our New York State Marriage Equality Act impact on low-income and no-income families. When marriage equality was enacted last summer, everyone was excited. It was a great um, time. It came out, um, the bill passed right around Pride time. So it gave us another reason to celebrate. Um, New York State was recognizing and respecting our families. But for many people who are living in poverty or are dealing with issues around finances, it was a new thing for, for um, same-sex couples who were receiving public assistance. For example, um, some of the questions we were getting from our community members were, if I receive public assistance and I were to get married, would I still be eligible? In some cases, the answer is no, because marriage is more than just the respect of our families. It's also the the joining together of um, two, two households, I guess, um, including the finances. Some other questions are, if I'm receiving benefits through a federal program, will the federal government recognize my family and my spouse for um, um, benefits or purposes around benefits? The answer is unclear. My organization, our position is that um, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act is unconstitutional. And there are a number of cases going on nationally dealing with that specific issue. And the end result is am I going to have this additional benefit that I'm entitled to because the federal government is respecting my um, my family, or am I limited only by my home state recognizing my family? Uh, when you're doing a case that has to do with LGBT discrimination, have you seen a lot of um, themes in it or recurring issues of discrimination? Unfortunately, yes, and there's some of the same issues that have been going on for for years. Um, there's an inherent disbelief, um, for example, with the trans transgender client that um, this person cannot be telling the truth or is not credible because, you know, they're 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 confused or they they don't even know what they are. I've heard um, judges make comments like, well, why do you have to tell anyone you're transgender? Um, why do you have to have these operations? There's there's just this skepticism. Um, about um, LGBT people and, again, um, in my examples, transgender people. Um, with um, gay and lesbian people, there's still um, a belief that we are not uh, capable of having um, committed relationships, that we are not interested in um, in families. And that, um, 
again, that disbelief that um, the judgment um, is still going on and um, unfortunately um, the court system. And I think there has been a lot of work done on educating and um, raising the competence levels in, in the court system, but there's a lot of work to go. How would you deal with that if a judge or somebody else in the courtroom says something like discriminatory towards your client? I can answer it two ways. Um, first, as an attorney, my job is to represent my client to the best of my abilities. Um, part of representing my client is making sure that my client is respected. Um, everyone in um, New York State is entitled to a fair hearing. If you're um, part of having a fair hearing is that you're not disrespected from the get-go. So again, using a transgender client as an example, in New York State, there's still not a law that prohibits um, discrimination um, based on gender identity and expression. Some counties do include um, gender identity and um, expression in their non-discrimination acts. Uh, for example, the New York City Human Rights Law does. But on the state and federal level, um, gender identity and gender expression are not protected classes. So going into a courtroom, um, an administrative hearing office, or anytime you're you're working for your client, the first thing is to make sure that they are respected. As an advocate, I feel the way to address the discrimination or the possible discrimination is to um, work, again, with community groups and with community members on learning how they can advocate for themselves. Unfortunately, there's a lack of resources in providing representation for everyone that's that needs it. What that means is that one client who... Um, identifies as LGBT um, versus another client who does not have representation may have totally different um, experiences in front of the same judge. Being a lawyer who uh, deals with a bunch of different, not so much related topics like domestic abuse and uh, discrimination, do you ever see these issues lumped together? All the time. One of the models that we use in having um, an LGBT and HIV advocacy project is that there's so much um, intersections in our clients' lives. So, for example, um, someone who identifies as a gay man may also have HIV, but his legal issue is about housing. You know, so although um, his identities aren't directly or his medical status aren't related to the direct legal issue, um, my job is to make sure that um, he is comfortable and respected throughout the entire process. And although I would probably be the first attorney he meets with, I'm, I'm making sure, along with our project director, Jennifer Ching, that everyone is at the same level of, of being respectful to our clients, regardless of their um, sexual orientation or gender identity or HIV status. This is Travis here on Outcasting, where you don't have to be queer to be here. I'm talking today with Juliana, and we're speaking with Richard Sines about his experiences as a lawyer in New York City, representing low-income people living with HIV and LGBT families. You mentioned that you're the only lawyer in your staff of about 25 attorneys that deals with these sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's a good thing, or do you think there should be sort of separate lawyers that specifically know about one topic? Or do you think that everyone should kind of know about everything? I think it's an example of a nonprofit organization who provides free direct legal services, trying to be responsive to the needs of our community with limited resources. 
the reality is that um, for every client or every case that we're able to take on, there's so many that we're unable to take on just due to lack of resources. Um, but to your question about um, like expertise or um, being a specialist in, in, in specific areas, I'm a big advocate of being um, of gaining expertise in specific areas. Um, although my practice, I'm dealing more with uh, specific populations. Um, you know, I, I can go down the hall to one of our experts on housing law or one of our experts on tax law and, you know, uh, we're able to work together. Um, Queens Legal Services, we have around nine different units and, um, again, a staff around 25 attorneys in, in addition to a great support staff that are usually the first people that our clients are meeting with. Um, we work on a number of different issues and we have two offices in Queens. One in Long Island City where we house our um, domestic violence law and advocacy project, which is, again, representing victims of domestic violence in both family court cases, in immigration-related issues, and also in matrimonials, which are divorces. We also have our Disability Advocates Project, which um, represents people mostly in um, Social Security hearings and then um, in the federal courts. We have an education project where most of our clients there are um, people who are school age, including um, elementary to high school level, who are either um, facing suspensions or need an individual education plan. And um, our attorney and paralegal work on that. Um, we have a food stamp project. And then in our Jamaica office, we have our housing unit, um, which focuses mainly on um, non-payment evictions and um, holdover cases. And also through a partnership, we're, we're now focusing on discrimination in the housing context. We do have a foreclosure project as well as our um, low-income tax clinic and our consumer issues project. So we have a number of different issues and a number of different units to respond to those issues. And sometimes our clients, more than likely, our clients have multiple issues when they come to us. I work hand in hand with the other attorneys to make sure that we are um, representing them not only to the, the best of my ability, but to the best of the ability of Queens Legal Services. Do you think that uh, such different topics like HIV, uh, LGBT families and like domestic violence, which kind of sometimes the LGBT and HIV get put together. Mm -hmm. But do you think that things like domestic violence should kind of be lumped together with uh, LGBT families? I do. Um, in the United States, again, the um, the statistics are are minimal um, due to underreporting. But the um, oft quoted statistic is that in same sex couples are in, in what's being called intimate partner violence. The rates are um, comparable to in heterosexual couples. The issue is that it wasn't until two thousand and eight in New York State that um, someone who is in a same-sex couple and is experiencing intimate partner violence was able to go to the um, the family court to get an order of protection. And in the past, it meant you had to call the police, have your partner arrested, go through the criminal process in order to get an order of protection. Again, that just opened up so many issues about um, the history of discrimination and harassment and abuse of 
the police department against um, LGBT-identified individuals. So I think the model we use in developing our different projects, we are mindful of the different intersectionality that happens, um, and we try to um, address all of those issues because we do have clients who are LGBT and living with HIV and experiencing um, family-related issues. Does your work ever include LGBT youth? It does. Um, and I, I, I think what we're seeing is either clients who are over 18 but less than 24 or um, youth who are school age and, again, in our, in our education unit as well as our, our, our Disability Advocates Project, we um, do represent youth. In the other cases, for example, um, in our family law unit, we, we have taken on some youth who are um, people who are 24 and, and younger in representing them in the family court. Again, this is an area that we are expanding our LGBT advocacy work, and we we want to partner with the experts out there. You know, there's a great organization called Day One um, that works specifically with youth um, or young people under 24 years of age, and they also they are also expanding their LGBT work. There have been a lot of things in the media about LGBT youth and. Some things that have been civil, some things have been criminal. I don't know where like the Tyler Clemente case would fit into this um, or the student in – I don't know what part of the country it's in uh, – who was bullied at school and then uh, the uh, boy's mother gave him a stun gun to deal with the bullying and then there was – the student got expelled. Do you, do you know about that? That was in Indiana. I read Indiana. about that. Do you know about that case and would that fall under something you would ever be close to dealing with? That – falls under there it, it's the intersection of criminal and civil um for example um you know in addition to possibly um bullying because of someone's actual or perceived sexual orientation there might also be issues around um around mental health issues for example someone who every day I go to school I know I'm going to be harassed they might be dealing with um, anxiety or depression. And instead of the school officials um, doing their job, what they're responsible for, which is the safety of all of the students, they want to get rid of that student. I do um, see the increased media attention to bullying um, seems to be a natural progression of both the media and society at large, really looking at LGBT issues as um, as valid issues. What are the kinds of training one needs to have to be a lawyer on these cases? Well, definitely a, a legal training um, with an understanding that our clients are not perfect and our clients are dealing with a number of issues. And in terms of training, it comes with experience. Um, I, I would say anyone who's interested in doing work with um, very with marginalized communities um, to do an internship get get out there there's a number of community organizations that are always looking for volunteers and it's that it's that personal experience and that personal touch working with um, these specific communities that are going to make you a better advocate you're already starting that you're passionate about this issue or whatever issues you're you're passionate about it's now um, putting it into practice, and the best place to go is to these organizations that are, are doing this work. What was your 
training or your experiences that got you to the point of being a lawyer that specialized in your area currently? While I was studying, I was really into social justice movements, and uh, my thesis looked at how the LGBT movement is a nat natural extension of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the labor movement, and how how all of these things relate to each other, and what are like the the different tactics and techniques, or the lessons learned that um, from each of these movements. I did have an internship with the national organization um, that. And at the time, um, we we knew that there was going to be a big shift in just the national discussion and national policy around um, people's civil, civil liberties. That was my training ground, you know, being on the forefront of that. Uh, my first job out of college was with the National HIV Advocacy Group that was specific to Latino men and women and um, transgender people. And... From there, I got the experience of not only looking at it from a local level, but also a regional and a national level, which I think is important. You know, um, a number of us, we can be born and raised in, in, a, in a certain um, location, go to school right down the street, um, you know, go to college in the same area, work, your family's all here. And there's so much more um, out there that, that you know, you could you should take the time if you have the opportunity to take advantage of that, to see how things, um, how people do things differently in New York from, from Texas or in, in Oregon. What specific clients have you helped that you felt the best about that you really made a change? There's two. There's my first case that I, I, I guess everyone will always remember their first client. Mine was an older, an older woman, um, living with HIV who was facing eviction because there was a, a problem with her, um, public assistance budget. So again, you, you're seeing how it's, it's multiple issues going into play here. Um, she was homebound and due to distress of possibly being evicted, she suffered a stroke. Working with her, and, you know, getting all of the information and advocating for her to make sure that they corrected her her budget and that she was able to uh, receive those benefits so then she would not be evicted. And seeing that whole process and, you know, hearing from her on a daily basis, you know, checking in, how are you doing today? How are you feeling today? Um, do you want to take a break and we could talk about it tomorrow? You know, I got to have a connection with her. And then at the end, when we were successful in helping her, um, you know, it, it was such a great moment. The bigger part of that was this was a client um, due to the nature of my project. I had never met her. All of our communication was over the phone. She was homebound, you know. So um, although I didn't have that face-to-face -face time with her, I felt that, you know, I was able to represent her because um, we had a connection. And then um, another great case is I represented a family who um, wanted to become the guardian for three siblings who um, whose mother had passed away. All three of the the, the children um, have different medical issues, and um, we were successful in um, helping helping this family become the guardians of them, and we were able to keep them together. Richard, what do you think has changed since you were a young out gay man in high school? A, a ton of things have changed. You know, I'm so happy and just excited to be at an LGBT youth um, radio program 
and being able to talk about being a gay man, you know, for me, it's very important and it validates my, my existence. It validates my work and, um, it validates that a lot of positive changes have happened. One, one of the major things now is that we have every, every night on, on the news, there's a, a story concerning LGBT issues. Not all of them are positive stories, but the fact that, that we're making the news now is great. You know, I think celebrities coming out and the change in the media has had a huge impact on how society discusses LGBT issues. I think a lot of the progress that has been made for lesbian and gay people has not really captured the, the needs or been as respectful to the needs of transgender communities and transgender people. Um, so I think that's one area where much more change has to happen. One other um, big change um, in how society discusses or how gay people themselves um, talk about ourselves is that we can we can say it with with a sense of history now. Um, it's it, you know a lot of this stuff is new as we go forward, but we're able to relate it back to something um, that's already happened before. All of the attention that's going around with marriage, this relates to to when people were just trying to form families together um, with the, the huge fear of um, of being harassed or 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 facing violence. And it's not just within um, the LGBT communities, but again, I think there's. An, a natural extension of the civil rights um, movement um, is what's being called the LGBT rights or the gay rights movement. In the marriage debate, we hear people talking about interracial marriage. I think as gay people, it's our duty to to look back to this history that we are part of and, um, and be able to um, be proud of it. What advice would you give to anybody who's looking to set up resources for LGBT people, especially if they have some kind of barrier, like a religious leaning? My advice for um, an individual or an organization that's looking to um, provide resources or services to LGBT youth or to LGBT families or individuals is to speak directly to the community members. There's different ways of going about it. Uh, right now, social networking is huge. But I think when, if, if you're only doing social networking, you're missing the, the human touch with it. I think one of the most important things for any organization um, that's providing a service is to make sure that they have a presence in the community so that if I'm someone who's seeking help or seeking resources or services and I dial a number, I know someone's going to pick up the other, the other end of the phone. You know, it's just not this name. It's an actual person. Thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Thank you again. Richard Sines is a lawyer with Queens Legal Services in New York City. Queens Legal Services is a nonprofit organization that seeks to provide equal access to justice for all low-income residents of Queens through a range of legal advocacy, education, and community partnerships. They provide free legal counseling, representation, and referrals in civil matters to eligible low-income individuals and families. They also work to identify and address root causes for systematic inequalities in the legal system. Queen's Legal Services is a part of Legal Services NYC, which is on the web at legalservicesnyc.org. You could also find it on WDFH's site at outcasting.wdfh.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. 
the Lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show, dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and favorite cactuses, where you don't have to be queer to be here. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home, at school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386, or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBT youth suicide prevention. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH-FM 90.3, Ossining, New York, and on the net at wdfh.org. For more information on this program and a list of resources, including the Trevor Project Suicide Hotline, visit us at wdfh.org and click on Outcasting. I'm Travis. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next time. If you enjoyed this program, please make a tax-deductible gift to WDFH. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit wdfh.org and click on Donate. Thanks. Thanks.